0: I'm Joel Shetler, your host and editor of Finance & Commerce, Minnesota's oldest business newspaper and online publication. Thanks so much for joining me. I would also like to thank our podcast sponsor, Guarantee Commercial Title. Guarantee offers a new platform for the delivery of services based on the expertise and ingenuity of a visionary team of title professionals that identifies obstacles and creates solutions that result in a successful sale, construction, or financing of commercial real estate. To learn more, visit Guaranteetitle.net. Just a year after the end of World War II, George Adelson and Gordon Peterson were onto something big when they founded a small construction business in the basement of Adelson's Richfield home. The business, which became known as Adelson and Peterson Construction, has grown dramatically from those modest beginnings. Now, with 600 employees and offices in 11 states, Adelson & Peterson is a top 100 national contractor. Adelson & Peterson provides pre-construction, construction, and contracting services. The company celebrates its 75th anniversary this year, with events ranging from employee recognition activities to community service projects. The celebration comes at a busy time for Adelson & Peterson, which is working through a backlog of projects. The company is active in segments that include commercial, education, healthcare, hospitality, industrial, multifamily, recreation, and senior living. In the following interview, Adelson & Peterson CEO Jeff Hansen speaks with reporter Brian Johnson about the company's beginnings and growth trajectory. He also discusses challenges and opportunities for the industry as a whole, as it emerges from the pandemic.
1: Pleased to be joined by um, Jeff Hansen, CEO of Adolphson & Peterson Construction, based here in the Twin Cities. Jeff, how are you doing today? Doing great today, thanks, Brian. How are you? I'm doing all right, just surviving this hot weather and uh, trying to get through the, the dog days of summer here.
2: <laughs> yeah, no complaining, because come January, We'll be in a different story.
1: That's, that's exactly right. Well, hey, um, Jeff, uh, th- thanks for joining us. Um, this is a good time to do this interview because I know that um, Adolphson Peterson is celebrating a big milestone this year, um, 75th anniversary. Um, you know, the company was founded um, in 1946, um, just after World War II. Wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about. The, uh, the company and its history. Um, you know it, it's so great here in Minnesota we have this tradition of these companies that started small and now are just uh, serving doing projects all over the country and all over the world, frankly. And I know uh, AMP you know, is part of that group. so um, wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, the history of that company and how it got to where it is today. No
2: problem. We'll back in. The company had started because George Adolphson had immigrated from Sweden. So that's a story in and of itself. But when George and Gordy started the business back in 1946, they literally started it in the basement of George's house in Richfield. And in many cases, they were doing remodel work, building houses, things like that. That's kind of how it started. And it's interesting how you go from that 75 years ago building just remodels or whatever, to now building high rises projects in excess of $150 million, et cetera. And to see the organization grow over those 75 years is remarkable in and of itself. But because this has continued to be a family-owned organization, second, third, and now fourth-generation owned, I think that's a testament to those organizations, especially construction companies. And there's a lot in town here That remain family owned. And being family owned, that comes with a lot of responsibilities to a family. And I'm not a family member, but I have a responsibility to the shareholders, you know, as being CEO of the organization, being the steward of what, you know, their grandfather, father, great grandfather had started 75 years ago. So, in many respects, it's an honor to be part of such a long tradition and a tradition quite frankly, that the shareholders want to continue to have this organization be family owned. And at the core of the whole organization are the family values that have stuck with the organization. And there's just a really cool story, if I could just digress for just literally 60 seconds, Mm -hmm. is that there was a time that when the business was starting to get really successful, George and Gordy made up their mind to say, we want to give our employees one square meal a day. And they would bring a cook to the job sites, bring a cook to the office, they would actually cook lunch for the employees. So they could spend their money on feeding their families the rest of the time. It's interesting when you go to every office in this organization, whether it's in Denver, whether it's in Phoenix, Dallas, or here, you walk into the break room or lunch room, you're gonna see a refrigerator, you're gonna see supplies, you're going to see snacks, because that is the tradition that's carried on within this organization, that if you can't get away, you can go make a sandwich, you can go make a salad and actually give yourself the nutrition that you need to continue on. That's part of, it's kind of the cool legacy of this organization that's continued. But I think when you look at that, that's the core of the family values, the core of the safety of the employees, the health of our employees. That's always been the cornerstone of this business. And so to see and look back and read about what took place in the trials and tribulations, even that George went through and how the family has been in the business the entire time. And there are still members of the adults and family that are still in the business, contributing every day. It can be at a leadership level. It can be a superintendent level. It can be a project coordinator level. All levels of the organization in this company have members of the adults and family represented. I think that's really a testament to the family values and structure of this organization that we adhere to every day.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, how, how long was George active in the business? Was he, uh... George
2: was active in the business until probably 1981 or 82. Mm. At that point, he really stepped away. And when he stepped away, that became you know kind of the step-off point for the next level of leadership in the organization, especially at the family level, in which two of the sons And when the son-in-laws, I'm sorry, three of the sons and one son-in-law were extremely active in the business and then charting the path for growth at that time, which has been pretty exciting to see as well. Um, And so with George stepping away, you know, the family picked up right where he left off, growing the business.
1: Yeah, it's cool to see those businesses that stay in the same family for generation after generation and... um... Just uh, continue that tradition. But where where are you? Uh, you mentioned some of your offices. Uh, where how many locations do you have right now, and and how many uh, employees approximately?
2: We have eleven locations throughout the country. We operate with a hub and spoke mentality. So the hubs would be Minneapolis, Denver, Dallas, and Phoenix, and then from there we have the spokes that come out that service other parts of those regions too. For example, Austin and San Antonio. We have offices in Austin, San Antonio to service the Central Texas market. So that's how we operate the business. You know, I would most of our business comes from really the heart of and the core of the US, right down the Midwest. Uh, not really a presence up in the Northeast, but you know, we're licensed in 36 of the 50 states in the US because we have traveled there with our customers and that's what we focus our success on it's we're a service industry first yes we build buildings but we provide a service to our customers and if they have a need and they want us to support that need we will travel with them and we have clients we've traveled to alabama for to support what they need to do because we become their trusted partner
1: Well, with all those different locations throughout the country, I imagine you have a pretty good sense of kind of where where we're headed in terms of the business conditions in construction. How would you say uh, Minnesota or the Midwest compares to some of those other markets you're in? Um,
2: My terms- assessment of Midwest, I think the Midwest market is still healthy. Regardless of what happened during the pandemic, because everyone suffered in the same way. And I think a lot of people have come out of this in the same way. You know, there are some markets that are, might be a little bit stronger than Midwest, but you look at Phoenix and Dallas, for even Denver for that matter, there's a migration of population taking place today. It's coming from the coast into these other communities. And that's where we're still seeing those markets be extremely strong. But I would say this market has, I think it's weathered what has taken place during the pandemic very well. Part of that, I think it's just you got that level of Midwest mentality where we're going to do this, we're going to get through this, we're all going to band together because, you know, the business is going to come back even stronger than what it was coming in. I would say, well, I think all of us would say in this industry that might be the longest and strongest construction run that we saw. Who knew that whatever did take place, that recession or whatever, would come as a result of a pandemic versus some other economic condition that took place. I don't think anyone saw that coming. And so that puts you in a different operating mode. And prior to the pandemic hitting, we were really focused on growing the business and building our backlog because we thought a recession would take place even a couple of years before that. Mm -hmm. And so being focused on our customer base, having a sales culture and mentality to be prepared to come through this. And that includes Minnesota. We have some pretty significant projects going on and they will continue to go on you know, into next year. And I think focusing on building that backlog, along with a lot of our competition has done that too. I would say we've been very successful along with this industry in Minneapolis to maintain the employment. We didn't lay anyone off. We didn't have to. I mean, we were still strong. And so coming through this and being prepared for it, which wasn't preparing for a pandemic, I mean, that was quite interesting to see how everyone did respond that way. But when we look at this marketplace and where it's been and the people that have continued, the organizations that is have continued to build, have continued to expand their businesses. You've seen the multifamily world that hasn't stopped. I think it's crazy for all of us to see what's happened on the residential side, single family and multi-family, and I think that is going to continue to be strong. I think that's the climate that we have here, this business climate. I think there's a lot of unknowns that I see as it relates to the office market and how people are going to come back. I don't think it's a matter of coming back. It's how we're going to come back. We're even working through that ourselves. What does return to work look like? What does that look like really moving forward? Because a lot of people have proved you can be remote and be very productive in your jobs. It's pretty tough for the construction industry because of our people have to be on site, our subcontractors have to be on site to build the buildings. It's not one of the things they can sit behind a screen at home and be productive in their job. They actually have to be on site. So I think we have, I think we've underestimated the impact of the pandemic and what it had because our frontline workers, they exposed themselves every day too, to what was taking place in the sites. the subcontractors did. So I think when you look at how this particular market in the Midwest has responded, I would say it responded in spades without a doubt that it really came together, you know, despite everything else that was taking place. And I, I believe this market will continue to be strong. It will.
1: Well, that's good to hear. And I think a lot of that just goes back to getting through the pandemic, uh, the, just the, the workers leaning on the safety training that they've always had um, in terms of uh, protecting their protecting the, the breeding equipment and so on. Um, is that, do you think that's part of, uh, can you talk a little bit about that and just the safety culture and, and how um, we're able to get through this?
2: Absolutely. I mean, safety is the number one value and core value that we have at the organization. Our goal is when people put the key in ignition that morning, they're gonna put the key in ignition that night and go home and have dinner with their family, friends, significant others, etc. That is number one. And I know that this industry, it's a tight industry here in, especially in Minnesota. We all have shared best practices when it comes to managing through the pandemic. Our subcontractors, they work with every general contractor in town. In many cases, they brought some ideas to us as well as what we can do. Early on, there was a huge shortage, for example, in hand washing stations. Mm -hmm. And anything sanitation related. We had teams going to Home Depot at that point in time, buying the wash tubs and basically manufacturing our own wash stations Mm
1: -hmm. on each
2: one of our job sites to promote the cleanliness, to promote the sanitation, to promote whatever we needed. If you didn't have a mask, we had supplies of masks. We had supplies of gloves. We had all the screening forms that people would complete. So we wanted to make sure that every job site and all those individuals that came on the job site, not just the AP people, but our trade partners as well, that we were doing everything we could do to keep them safe and keep them productive and keep moving forward because we did have interruptions. Everyone had interruptions, but we actually formed a COVID response team very early on that met weekly, reported on the job sites. This is national. This was a group of people from across the company that we were tracking job sites. We were tracking where we had positives, not just with our subs, our own employees. What decisions do we make? What communications do we need to put out to our people And those communications sometimes were weekly because things were changing so fast in how we had to respond to it. Where was OSHA's guidance? Where was the CDC guidance? How are we handling the remote work? How are we keeping our people productive? And so our investment in technology that we've made the last several years really was paying off so that people could feel like they were still part of a team even though they were remote. And that's part of, you have an organization any general contractor who operates with a team mentality, when you interrupt disruption in the team, you could potentially interrupt disruption in what you're trying to do. So, our communications, how we support our people, we're all aimed at keeping our teams engaged and keeping them productive. And that's how you keep, that's why we're very successful in the retention of our employees. And that's one thing we are concerned about. You hear about the quote unquote, the great resignation wave that's taking place. We haven't seen that yet. I'm not aware of a lot of other general contractors or subcontractors that have seen the right resignation. Of course, there are some people that just naturally will move because there is a labor shortage in our industry. But I think we've been pretty fortunate, Brian, in many respects, to have the level of retention of employees that we have had coming through the pandemic and the challenges that everyone was facing during that period of time, and continue to face even with now the. Sure. the
1: insurgence of a new variant. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you talked about the labor shortage. And and I know that's been an ongoing issue for a number of years in the industry. Um, what are some of the other things that uh, maybe some of the headwinds or things that keep you awake at night in terms of the overall business conditions out there? Um, cost of building materials, that kind of thing. Um, what's what's on your mind?
2: Well. Brian, you hit on the number one concern that everybody has, and this is the supply chain challenge. Mm. Back when the, basically when the economy shut down, factories were shutting down, production was, you know, there were, you know, there, lack of a better term, we didn't have people transporting goods and services because there was no production taking place. And to get that fired back up, it's almost like you're in traffic, you have a stoplight then you're 20 cars back you know just because the light turns green doesn't mean you can hit the gas right away. there's this latent effect that takes place to get things moving again and that's what we've seen the biggest challenges right now the lead time that's taking place is a big thing the price materials and specifically, let's talk about lead times i mean lead times you know to get joyce and deck on our projects, typically it might be the three, four month, three to four month lead time. It's eight to 10 months out mm-hmm. right now. And that's putting pressure on the schedule. It's placing pressure on owners that want to build, especially industrial buildings. That, you know, Right now, the backlog on that is affecting the amount of industrial. Because so many people are online with e-commerce, that's where you see these industrial you know, distribution centers, warehouses, the last milers for yeah. Amazon or less milers for FedEx and what they need to do to get the goods and services out there, that is a huge challenge to this industry right now, that whole supply chain, because these factories shut down, you know, getting even electrical types of assemblies, mechanical assemblies, because some of the factories shut down, they're firing up and then we've got to get people back to working again, that's the other thing. But you know, material prices, We all have heard the story of what's happened with wood prices, how that's affected the cost. I mean, it's up 400% from a couple years ago. We've seen a decline in it, but I don't think anyone expects the price of materials to be much less, especially for the near future, compared to what was pre-pandemic because things were starting to increase then. So what does that do? It puts pressure. puts pressure on the owners for their ability to manage to their budgets to build. It puts pressure on our subcontractors it puts pressure on us to be able to do this. And we were, um, we participate. you are blessed to have Ken Simonson. He's the chief economist for the AGC. Mm-hmm. He spoke last week to the Minnesota AGC contingent. And he had a slide that I think all general contractors go, yeah, that's what we've been worried about. It's just from June of 20 to June of 21. You know, the cost materials you know, they're up 36% in total. Now, bid prices, in other words, what we're bidding these contracts to our owners, that's only up like 4%. So you got a 36% increase in materials, only a 4% increase in pricing that's being passed on to the owners. So where's that coming from? That is absolutely affecting. More importantly, it's affecting the trade. It's affecting general Contractors, because there's that much pressure to be able to continue to meet owners' budgets, and that that money's got to come from somewhere, and so that's affecting the profitability and the margins of this industry compared to what they used to be. Which I would not say uh, they're very thin margins when it comes to that. So there's the price increase, there's the access, and what that does that places pressure on the teams to get in front of that and work with our owners sooner rather than later so that they understand exactly what the risk is, so if we can get them into the mill and get their spot in line now, you know, it's going to take probably more money up front to do that than what they might have been used to doing in the past. And so that's the part that this industry has had to learn very quickly how to respond to that. But I think it's going to be a matter of time because the whole economics, we all got a macro microeconomics back to your college days, it's going to catch up. You know, the pricing will change. All of a sudden there'll be excess supply and some of the pricing will come down. But I wish I had the crystal ball. I don't have the crystal ball to say, is that eight months, twelve months from now? I can't tell you, Brian, when that's going to actually take place. But right now that's the number one issue because and we have to watch what happens with our trade partners. We have to watch what's going on there. We're all managing our risk. Construction's about cash flow and risk management. It doesn't matter if you're a general contractor specialty trade or other trade contractor; those are the two things that actually keep this industry moving forward. Because if you can't manage your risk and manage the cash flow, that's when things get to be very hairy. That's when things get scary for everyone. We start to see companies fail, and we don't want to see that happen to anybody. But you know, I think this industry has some very significant headwinds for the next ten to twelve months. It's how we respond it's how we work with our owners that will get everyone through
1: that. Yeah, well, you, you mentioned some some very significant challenges there. And by the way, I'm sorry that I missed Ken Simonson. I know he's terrific and I enjoy speaking to him on the phone once in a while, but uh, I'm sure that was an informative discussion. But um, y- y- yeah, in talking about the challenges, it can be, seems pretty overwhelming. Um, what are what are some reasons for optimism out there? I know just reading today that maybe it sounds like there's a bipartisan infrastructure deal um in Washington, certainly it'd be good to see some investment there. But uh do you have any reason for optimism for the future?
2: Well, I, I think you're right. I think there there's three, I think there's 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 three critical things that will take place all dealing with. I look at these confidence indexes by my former, I'm sorry, by by, by all my peers in the industry, all all the CEOs in which there's a higher level of confidence in the future, what's going to take place because there is a backlog of need. I think infrastructure is going to be a big injection, especially from a construction perspective because, and for heavy highway people especially, that will be a big deal because You know, when we start dealing with infrastructure, there's still a very high need and very high demand. And I think that from a federal perspective to support where the state budgets are, I think that's going to help accomplish really even what some of our needs are here in Minnesota. I think that's going to be big. The other infrastructure piece, if it goes towards education, there's two components of that. Number one, I think they need to prioritize the advancement of programs where some of that money goes, because I think we need to educate and be focused on the strength of our education system and that's where even ap looks it's like we want to get a workforce development initiative With there's all kinds that are out there but there's not a lot of people coming into the trades from the construction side so whatever extent we can kind of in, in, incent individuals to get into this industry because it actually has a great career path to it i think just some people are spooked historically by the ups and downs it's like i'm on a job now but I don't know what my next job is. And I think that's the responsibility of the employer to have that type of you know, ongoing view. I always like to say to people, it's like, I'm glad you're working on this job, but here's the next job I want you to do. I think that's important. So I think that infrastructure, there's going to be a significant component in which construction is going to be a benefactor of that. The second piece is with interest rates being where they're at today, that actually is helping think even developers, I think it's helping homeowners. I think it helps everybody having those interest rates low, compensate for where these price increases are. So I think that the economic policy and what the Fed is going to do and how we watch that is going to be important, especially relates leads to what's happening with inflation, because we're all going to get scared about inflation again too. So I think that's a critical component. that's going to help feed some of the optimism moving forward and just the Fed now telegraphing where they're going to be with interest rates for the very near future. I think that's important. The last one, the big component, the third one in my mind is, I think as it relates to the optimism, is that we are aware of the backlog. We are aware of, you know, there were a lot of projects that were put on hold. AP itself, I mean, we saw about almost $500 million worth of work get put back up on the shelf because of what happened with the pandemic, the uncertainty, And we all dealt with that uncertainty. I can't think of anyone who is unaffected by the uncertainty. But now what we're seeing, we're seeing some of those projects come off the shelf. The architectural billing index. You know, for the last five months, that's been positive. In fact, it was at a record level just a month ago. And that index is very important for the construction industry because that is the leading indicator of work that's gonna start in 12 to 18 months. And the strength of that indicator especially the last five months, compared to where it was back in March and April of 20, that's the biggest indicator for everyone to say there's some work coming. And I think that's very healthy for the architectural engineering industry, which, quite frankly, was devastated during especially eight months. And so to see that come back is encouraging for this industry, too. So those are my three points of optimism as I look to see what it means for this industry.
1: Yeah, absolutely. What uh, what particular sectors are you active in now, or um, where are you seeing opportunities out there? You mentioned multifamily, and of course, industrials going like gangbusters. Um, what what are you working on right now?
2: Well, both of those, and you know, not so much the apartments as much as we've been doing more high-rise multifamily, more the higher density. Mm-hmm. We've been focused on that. That plays in nicely to. We have a self performed concrete operation. And so that plays in nicely because it helps us really with schedule and controlling resources. Um, that has been really an advantage for AP. So I think those two markets you mentioned are extremely strong. You know, education is still a very strong market for AP. I think the real change there is with all the bond programs in the past in all of our markets and even here in Minnesota. It was a very strong bond program on the school side and infrastructure side, that quite frankly, that's where we always have really good relationships. And so we see that being very strong. What's gonna fall off a little bit, at least from what we can tell, is you know some of the higher ed. I think they're challenged with enrollment, they're challenged with how they're responding to this and saying their focus, attention, energy is how they get the enrollment in place and how do they manage that moving forward. Maybe some of the infrastructure and projects will come from that. But the thing that I do believe still will continue, I still think there is a shortage of student housing. If you look at the bigger projects going on on universities around the country, if there is work going on, a lot of it's coming from the housing perspective, what they're trying to do to support the students there. So I still see that being an average market, but the other you know, buildings and things like that, I think that's going to be weaker. I think healthcare that is going to come back strong. I mean, everyone was focused from a healthcare perspective on whether you would just a service, those people that were ill and sick and how were they handling that? There was a huge pause in that market. You know, my brother-in-law is at, he's in the Fairview system and boy, did they struggle too, but that's just a ma- matter of managing through that. But I think there's a, there's a latent demand, there's a pent up demand for what's going to come from that perspective because you're going to have to look at we've done a lot of renovations lately yeah. for hvac systems in hospitals because of what did take place that has been a big area for us in many of parts of our country the other thing is the point of service these these remote you know surgical centers ambulatory surgical centers you know smaller but more focused type of facilities where you don't have to go to the big hospitals to do that. We've seen a lot of that type of, you know, we call them the micro hospitals, a lot of micro hospital work, as well as other medical office buildings. I think that is going to continue to be a strong market now moving forward too as we come out of this pandemic. You know, who knows what's going to happen to the recreation and lodging side? That was devastated too. You know, we, there's not a lot of work going on in that sector. So if there is, it's most of it's coming from the municipal side as ways well to recreational centers and community centers that people want to build to service and actually provide the benefits to the, back to the communities. So I mean, those, the office market, I alluded to it earlier, there are pockets in this country that have really strong office markets. You know, the Dallas and Austin area, that office market, it's still pretty strong because of the migration of people and these corporate headquarters that are relocating to these places. You know, CBRE, big big player here in town from the real estate side, when they relocated, I mean, they constantly relocated the corporate headquarters from LA to Dallas because of the business climate and what's taking place there. Yeah. And you see North Dallas explode and things like that. You know, I think it's a little slower here in town until things start to get moving again. And we understand what that return to work looks like. But I think that market will be a little bit slower to, re, to return in some of the other sectors as well.
1: Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, just to circle back a little bit though, um, we started out by talking about the uh, AP 75th anniversary. Um, what, uh, what types of events have you had or do you have anything else coming up or are you pretty much partied out by now?
2: <laughs> I wish we could say we're partied out by now, but we're not, unfortunately. Good. You know, coming out of this pandemic, you know, we've been very cautious in how we return to work and having large events and things like that because of just where the restrictions are. And you know, here, the way we've managed through this is we managed to really wear OSHA and CDC land on, on their guidance. And that's what we like to fall to because like I said, if safety is at the core of what we do, we better be the model citizen for taking care of our employees, not exposing them to situations where we shouldn't be exposing them. You know, our plans when we start to see things come back to normal, I don't know how this variant will play into this, but it's this fall that we're looking to have and into um, the early winter to have events that are targeted with our customers, our subcontractors, our employees, our employees' families, that we can actually then get together and celebrate with those people that are responsible for the 75 years of success. It's not Jeff Hansen. It's not. It's the superintendent on the job. It's the Hendrick Proofers of the world. I mean, It's it's the Maddie dolson of the world. Those are the individuals that have really taken us through not just the pandemic, but have helped us grow this business moving forward. And that's where we're going to start to focus more time and energy in how we celebrate, things like that, when we can do that more safely than what we would have been able to do back in May, because I don't think anyone would have showed up. I think there still was that concern. So, you know, that's what we're looking at later this year to really be more public. But the one thing we're doing in September is we're calling it the AP Day of Giving. You know, part of our tagline is we build trust, communities and people. So the community is one of the three legs. And so during the month of September, we are dedicating that month to giving back to our communities. It's our time, treasure, and talent. We're gonna have organized events. We'll have that advertised out on social media. We're gonna have 100% participation by our employees to demonstrate you know, the thank you back to the communities that allowed us to build where they live, where they work, where they play, where they educate, and where they heal. You know, if we are doing that, and we've always been a very benevolent organization because we know when you're building communities, you need to find ways to give back. That's what September is dedicated to. We targeted that because we think at that point, we'll be very comfortable doing that in whatever part of the country and whatever way we can. So that's the big benevolent activity that we're gonna focus on as an organization to really drive home for our employees, why we exist and what our why statement is and exactly drive home with them, why we give back. If we're fortunate enough to have jobs, Let's help those and let's help those that are the underserved. You know, we we believe in really supporting at-risk children, at-risk adults, veterans, you name it, go down. You know, we have a host of organizations that we support and something that we are very, very proud of as an organization.
1: Well, that's great. look forward to uh, learning more about that. And um, are, are you involved in uh, other efforts to, um reach out to uh, people of color and diversifying the workforce and things of that nature as well? Or, um, I mean, because there are a lot of resources out there that folks who uh, haven't, uh, you know, who could really help, could really help with on the workforce side and and things like that, Um, it it could be a real win-win situation. Where are you at in in terms of uh, outreach efforts?
2: Well, that's a great question, because I'll tell you this, Brian, We cannot exist in this industry. AP cannot exist in this industry without having that continual focus on DNI. You just can't. You know, part of even doing work here in the cities, and it's not about the requirements, it's about how do you help others advance themselves. So I think when working on the bus garage here in the cities Mm -hmm. and and meeting the requirements, EEOC requirements that the city and the Met Council have. I mean. We just don't do it for compliance. We're doing it because we know we need to do that. We know we need to participate in workforce development. And so they're bringing know the women owned, the minority owned, Mm -hmm. these types of organizations and bringing them into the fold. So the more successful they are, the better off they're gonna be. They'll be better partners in the future. And so we take some of these organizations under our wing through mentor protege relationships too. And that happens throughout the country. We will do joint ventures with minority-owned organizations. We will because we should be doing that. And it's a way to make everyone better. I mean, our goal is all boats rise in that situation. So understanding that you, you're you not going to exist in this business if you're not committed to that, if you're not really trying to advance that, that D&I world in, in this industry, we just won't survive. And so as a community and how we get together and how we all participate in programs that help advance that and bring individuals into this business so they see really the value of that, you know, that's how you really advance an industry that, quite frankly, has historically been known for not being as diverse as it should, mm-hmm. especially in Minnesota. And, you know, again, it comes down to it's, it's not should we, it's you need to, you have to in order to survive and grow as a business. And that's absolutely part of of what we're focused on as an organization and dedicating those resources. I mean, there's a new resource that the Minnesota AGC hired, Yolanda. They hired Yolanda probably, it's almost a year ago. It might not even be a year yet. But I had a visit with her to say, I need some feedback. I need some additional support. I also wanna look at what's best practice for us to have in this industry too. And so she will offer her time and talent to us you know, to help us understand how can we advance that ball further than what we are now, but to publicly be out there and sign up for the EGC's culture of care and understand what that means and what that means to our industry. That's where AP wants to be more of a leader, not a follower in that regard.
1: Uh, that's great. Well, well, good luck with, with those initiatives. And, um, I've, You've been very generous with your time, Jeff, and, and covered a lot of ground there, um, really interesting insight. Um, is there anything else you'd care to add before I let you go or um, any parting thoughts?
2: Well, the only parting thought is I hope that everyone shares the same passion that we do at AP about this, this business and industry because every project is different, every day is different, it's always a new challenge, but it's always one of those things where you drive by a building you're with your kids or with your grandkids and say, oh, by the way, that's what AP does, or that's what Ryan does. That's what Mortensen does. That's what McGough does. That's what our industry does. And so that level of you know, tangible nature about what we do, I think that keeps a lot of us really excited and energized because a lot of times it's not easy. It's really not easy. And, you know, you know, people are working on a Saturday. It's gonna show up with you know, food, breakfast tacos, or you show up with donuts or whatever. You wanna bring something to the job site to show the people that you appreciate them. You wanna be side by side with them. And I think that's that's the commitment that this industry has shown. And it's commitment this industry has shown to its owners and back to its community. So, you know, those are my parting thoughts. It's, it can be a really tough business, but at the same time, when you're done, Pretty
1: damn rewarding too. Yeah, absolutely. Very well said, Jeff. And again, I appreciate your time. Um, best wishes to you and and uh, your your company there. And uh, hope we can stay in touch, um, and talk talk in the future about some uh, some of the projects you're working on and things like that. So,
2: well, I appreciate Brian. You've been very generous with your time and giving us the opportunity to help provide some content for you and. Anytime you're looking for any content or whatever, or we'll just keep sending all of our press releases. We've got a huge commitment to communications in this organization, not just internally, but also externally. I think it's all part of our responsibility back to the community and to our employees to say, here's what's going on, or here's something new. If there's anything we can do to help you with what you're doing, by all means, reach out to myself or even Ben, and for that matter, because Ben has been just a great asset for us. They help us really develop a better communications approach and keep our teams educated on what's going on. So I absolutely appreciate what that investment means to us.
1: Great, I appreciate it. And I'll take you up on that, so have a good day, sir.
2: Well, thank you very much, Brian. Take care. You bet, bye-bye.
0: Thank you for listening and please subscribe to Beyond the Skyline. We can be found wherever you listen to your podcasts. To learn more about finance and commerce or to subscribe, go to our website, www.finance-commerce.com. I'm Joel Shatler, Editor of Finance and Commerce. Thank you again for listening to Beyond the Skyline.